This is the Rocky Mountain Review Podcast. I am your co-host, Gabe Peterson. And I'm your other co-host, Julia Badalese. This is the Rocky Mountain Review, the live news show that airs 4 to 5, Tuesday and Thursday, on KCSU that has turned into a podcast. And this is what you missed this week. This show will start off with a live interview with a sociology professor here at CSU, Joshua Spica, about some of the biased motivated incidents here on campus. Starting off on local, we have a Colorado Sheriff's deputy that was found unresponsive in his home after it had been found on fire. Then we move on to CSU's newest 100% renewable energy campus plan. And then finally for local, we will have an update on the opioid epidemic and how it is affecting people here in Fort Collins. And that will also be the subject of our roundtable discussion later on in the show. After that, we'll be going into national and global news. First off, we're going to have Trump's renegotiation of NAFTA and how countries are responding to the the negotiations. After that, we'll have what Rex Tillerson is saying to clash with President Trump on the Iran nuclear deal. And finally, the bombing in Somalia with its worst terrorist attack yet. Welcome to the Rocky Mountain Review. I am Julia Badalise, one of two co-news director, or one of your co-hosts today, um, and I am joined in here by my co-host Gabe Peterson. How's it going, Julia? Not bad. Just you know, I feel like we're really on it today, so I'm we feeling are. like this is gonna be a good show. It's gonna be a great I've, show. I've, I've, <laughs> you're like, it's going to be a good yeah, show. It's been a I've good a, morning. <laughs> um, we are also joined in the studio with um, Josh Spica, who is a professor here at Colorado State University. Um, thanks for coming on. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, actually, we're going to jump right into the interview with him. Um, we have had a lot of issues on campus with like bias motivated incidents. Um, we've seen a few in the last, even like the last like week or so uh, with um, the problems with, I forget her name uh, now, but there's a few... Um, a few articles through the Collegian with um, this girl who was having problems. Uh, she had like a, I think it, she promoted the Jewish New Year um, in her dorm room, and then someone put like Heil Hitler um, on. Yeah, yep. Yeah, on like the dorm room uh, whiteboard. And we talked about that last Tuesday. I believe. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then there, of course, have been uh, there was the noose that was in I think Newsom, mm-hmm. um, and just a lot of like horrible things like that on campus. Um, if you haven't heard about that, then that's what we're talking about today. Um, so, uh, Joshua, how, how long have you worked as a professor here at CSU? Uh, this is my fourth year in the Department of Sociology. That's right. And uh, what, were, what were actually the, um, what, are, what are the classes you're teaching? I know you're teaching uh, social problems, but. Right. Social problems is the big introductory level course that I teach. And it's about 200 students every semester. And. We cover all the bases of sociology, lots of race and gender and sexual orientation and class issues that we talk about. And I also teach courses uh, in social movements, mm-hmm. uh, food justice, and agriculture and global society. It's awesome. Yeah. So, <clears throat> what is your responsibility as an educator to prevent incidents like incidents like this at all, if at all, on campus? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. You know, what is the role of an educator in instilling consciousness in students around issues of identity, diversity, inclusivity. Um, You know, in my courses, I make a really explicit effort to talk about structural inequalities and the history of how that comes to be in the United States. You know, as a sociologist, we're really interested in understanding um, the root causes of social problems. So in the case of 
um, bias-motivated incidents or hate crimes, uh, you know, sociologists wouldn't look at this as an isolated event, but put it in the context of, say, the history of white supremacy or the, the history of Nazism or certain ideologies that promote superiority of certain groups over other <coughs> groups. Um, and so that's, that's sort of central to my identity as an educator is to help students to understand those pieces of it, to know um, the histories of those things so that they can make informed decisions about how to live their lives. Um, in, in terms of preventing them, uh, you know, if somebody had a magic eight ball <laughs> that they could shake up and say, can I prevent this next incident? Yeah. Yes, you can. I mean, that just doesn't happen in the real world. And yep. so, um, you know, beyond my role in the classroom, I'm a mentor as well to students and work to help them uh, achieve their goals and their visions for a better world and and that's something that i also think is something that i can do as an educator to um, help the good outweigh the bad so kind of going off that uh we hear the term increase in regards to bias motivated incidents here on campus mm. um as a professor who's worked here on campus for four years you said mm -hmm. would you say that they actually are increasing or is the coverage and awareness of them increasing by us like the media mm. that's a that's a great question and i, I tried to do a little bit of research on um, some of these numbers before I came in here today. And, you know, there, there is a history at CSU of these kinds of incidents going back decades, um, you know, not just in the, the four years that I've been here. But I think it's also important to put it in a larger social context within the United States. So, for example, um, in 2014, there were 804 hate crime incidents that occurred on college campuses. And uh, the most common kind is actually um, titled intimidation. And this means destruction, damage, and vandalism, or also destruction, vandalism, and damage. And what's interesting is that these events are labeled as hate crimes, actually. Um, so not just kind of bias-motivated incidents that are only adjudicated at a university level. Are the two differenti are differentiated, like bias-motivated and hate crimes? Are those two separate uh, incidences, or they do they kind of go hand in hand? It, well, that's a good question, <laughs> and and this gets to the to the kind of heart of the debate on college campuses right now is, um, you know, do you bring in a local sort of governing body at the university level, or do you bring in law enforcement outside of the university to deal with some of these problems? And and so, you know, that's something that's a debate on college campuses currently, and I think it's a, a debate here as well in terms of the language that we're using to talk about something like. Um, a noose, you know, that's a, that's a threat of bodily harm to a particular population. Think about the history of slavery, you know, it's a mechanism by which to maintain white supremacy over black populations. And so, you know, that needs to be taken in my mind seriously on college campuses as um, a visible threat to members of our community. What are your what are your thoughts on the university's response so far to some of the biased incidents? Um, it's more vocal than I've ever seen. Really? And, and and I think that's that's worth something. And I think part of it's the larger social context right now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, since the election of Donald Trump, we've seen an increase uh, in hate crimes and hate groups. They've increased 17% wow. to 917 groups in the United States. And and that's not on college campuses per se, but, but that's the larger social context within which these events are taking place. And so I think that there's a sensitivity on college campuses to these issues and a, a moral obligation to deal with them head on and mm -hmm. have conversations and work to protect those members of our community that are most vulnerable to these kinds of hate incidents. Have you seen, have you ever like 
personally seen them like in a classroom setting or is it not as much? Classroom setting is far, far less common in my experience. However, I have students come in and tell me stuff all the time. I mean, one of the, the incidents that immediately pops to mind is um, after the election of Donald Trump, there were students who were in the diversity offices the following day after the election, and there were a couple white men with the red Make America Great, Great Again hats on um, yelling that running through the diversity offices, and, and that intimidated a lot of those students. And so I hear these stories mm -hmm. as an educator here. It's, it's something that comes up, especially as a sociologist. Nice. Um... I think, well, not nice, but... Um, <laughs> no, it's tough, yeah. and it's a, it's a problem. Yeah. Um, is that something that you have, like... I, I guess, I, I think I remember during... Uh, I took your class a, probably a few semesters ago, mm -hmm. um, social problems, and I think that you mentioned one of the hardest things is, like, as a professor, actually um, responding to, um, like, things that are said in class. Mm. Like, if we're having a discussion in class and someone says something, it's like you kind of have to make sure that you respond to it correctly so that, like, everyone kind of feels like, I guess their opinion is, um, I guess, what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> um, uh, validated. <laughs> yeah, or... yeah. Um, how, how do you think that, is that, is that, that's been a difficult thing for you then? Um, I don't know if it's it's difficult as much as it's just part of my job description, yeah. <laughs> and it's just something that you know that I w work with on a regular basis and and try to generate consciousness around that for students to think about. Okay, you know, what's your identity? What's your history? And what are the identities and histories of those in the classroom, especially a social problems class where I have 200 students? I mean, I have the full cross section of the student body in terms of backgrounds and ethnicities and races and genders, etc. And and so. It's important to help students to learn to have those conversations across differences, mm -hmm. um, but also to do so in an empirically verifiable way, mm -hmm. especially in a sociology class. It's like, it's not just about your opinion. Uh, there are certain facts, there are certain histories, there are certain things you need to know, like white backlash. You know, that's a real sociological phenomenon that's going on right now. And so unless we address these kinds of racist incidents head on, um, and label them as such, then then I would be negligent in my empirical obligations as a professor to help students have the tools and the statistics and um, the concepts to adequately talk about these things. And then you kind of talked about how uh, this is like the most vocal you've seen, like responses from like Tony Frank or something on bias motivated incidents. Do you think this is like the time in uh, I guess CSU's history or like it just history as a whole where we start the conversation to where maybe we could end these incidences for good mm. or do you think it's going to continue for a while longer? Yeah, I don't think that these incidences will ever end and, and I think part of it is a, about having a conversation but then part of it is also um, working to take concrete steps to create the social conditions within the university for this to perhaps happen less. So for example, um, 70% of the student body is white at mm -hmm. CSU. Um, one of the things that would help to, I, I think, n normalize, if you will, diversity is having a diverse campus um, in a more representative sense <coughs> of uh, who lives in this country. And I, and I think the second piece is also on the faculty side. You know, only 16% um, of faculty are faculty of color here at CSU. And, and so the other issue is also having more diverse faculty so, so that students across the identity spectrum um, have folks that they can go to and talk to and, 
and have safer spaces on campus. And, and that starts with who's on this campus. Mm -hmm. So how do you think you would start creating more diversity for students? Do you think you start with more diversity as professors and as faculty and then it kind of trickles down because you have to apply to like come here. How mm -hmm. do you get, mm -hmm. I mean, how do you get people to come here and create a more diverse campus? Yeah, that's that's sort of a, a chicken and an egg yeah. kind of situation, yeah. <laughs> right? Do you do create incentives or do people just show up on yeah. their own? And I don't know if I have a clear answer mm -hmm. for that, but um, you know, part of it starts probably in our K through 12 system yep. and mm -hmm. and fostering educational opportunities for every group that lives in Colorado and and making sure that uh, college is a real option. And so that that begins, I think, at that level. Um, in terms of at a policy level here at CSU, I'm sure that there are many things we can do to um, affirmatively act to bring a diverse, more diverse population here, and and that's representative of Colorado as a whole state as well. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. a majority of the people who come to CSU work from Colorado. Yes. Although yeah. we do I, I serve people majority. all over the world too, yes. like our international yeah. student population is giant. I mean, it's uh, I think it's about nine percent of. Hmm. No, 7% of all of our students are international. And so, you know, that's also, we, we're, we're a global university. So it's yeah. not just an obligation to the U.S., but to a, a global diverse community as well. I think my final question for you would probably be, what do you think is the best plan moving forward for CSU or for just the students in general um, with bias motivated incidents that we've seen? You know, I, I've been really heartened by... Um, the political response by different groups of students. So um, our black students on campus who have been very organized um, in opposition to these events, holding um, different demonstrations and organizing to actually create the conditions that I think are required to change what's going on. And so I think political activation is really important and civic engagement more generally for students. You know, it's not just about talking about it, it's about creating the social conditions and the organizations and the events that can raise consciousness and change the culture around these things. I think that's really important. Awesome. Thank, thank you so much for coming on, um, Joshua. Um, sorry. So I feel like I'm so used to saying uh, professor, so now it's just weird. You can um, call me Professor Speaker, too. That I, <laughs> I, I probably could have, but it just felt weird. Um, anyway, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a um, pleasure. Uh, and anyway, we're going to go on a quick break here at the Rocky Mountain Review. Um, you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. Welcome back to the Rocky Mountain Review. I am your co-host, Gabe Peterson. Uh, I'm joined by my co-host, Julie Badalise. Hello. And joining us in the studio now is J.D. Layton, our national news correspondent. Yeah, I live here. <laughs> I live here. <laughs> well, I thought that interview went really, uh, really well. I appreciate Dr. Spica from com for coming in. And uh, Yeah, that was, uh, it was one of, I was saying, probably one of my favorite interviews we've done so oh, far. Absolutely. Um, it was really interesting, in my opinion. Yeah, so. it's always great to have somebody who can speak so eloquently and so That's intelligently. I, was, so. I know, and his uh, his lectures in class are basically just that. I kind of just sat there and was like, oh wow, <laughs> oh, I'm wow. getting like taught so many things right now. <laughs> yeah. So, but we're gonna jump right into local news, uh, and I'm gonna send that right over to Julia for our first story. That is a lie. You're gonna nope. send it over to JD. JD. <laughs> <laughs> You just always assume the wrong person. <laughs> it's the other J. Yeah. 
A 42-year-old sheriff's deputy was found unresponsive inside a house that burned in southern Colorado. The Colorado Bureau of Investigation said Sunday that the victim, Jeremiah Lee, was found in the early morning hours on Friday inside a residence on County Road 516 in the town of Bayfield. According to Durango Herald Archives, Lee is a longtime Bayfield resident and Lee became a deputy with the La Plata County Sheriff's Office about a year or two ago. Reports indicate that he was with the Durango police for 18 years before joining the sheriff's department office. Just after 12.30 a.m. a Friday, authorities received a report that a home at 6491 County Road 516, just southwest of Bayfield, was on fire. Fire crews were able to arrive within eight minutes with the home already showing a heavy amount of smoke and flames. Fire crews said they found a man inside the home who was unresponsive with a gunshot wound and attempts to revive him were unsuccessful. Bureau of Investigation spokeswoman Susan Medina said the cause of death had not been determined. Officials with Durango Police Department did not respond to the call, seeking comment on Sunday. In February, Lee was named the Colorado Cattlemen's Law Enforcement Officer of the Year from the La Plata Archuleta uh, Cattlemen's Association, Los Pinos Fire, District and the Durango Fire Protection District approved, provided assistance, and in all, it took 19 firefighters and 12 fire trucks to put out the fire. That was a mouthful. I, that was. I was. You did good, though. I liked when you said Archuleta. Um, anyway. Uh, I'm um, going to send it off to you now. Yeah. <laughs> Last week, Colorado State University made some serious steps in making CSU's energy 100% renewable with a 10-point plan. One of Colorado State's atmospheric professors, Scott Denning, was a contributor to the proposal, along with Garrett Gardner-Wells, the director of Environment Colorado, as well as Mar and as well as uh, Mara Brosi Wuchar, the district director of or for Congressman Jared Polis. In a press release, it stated that clean energy has become increasingly cheaper and that technology is growing much quicker. In the last decade, the U.S. has seen an increase in renewable sources like wind and solar energy. Congressman Jared Polis praised the university's efforts, stating, quote, I know that achieving 100% renewable energy is not only a feasible goal, but also a necessary goal, and that he is, quote, proud that they are helping to take the lead. From the Collegian, Samantha Yee reports that CSU pledged to be running on renewable energy by 2020 and complete carbon neutrality by 2050. Brosy Wibchar also stated that universities like CSU are what is necessary to get the ball rolling for legislation and policies on the federal level. Yee also reports that there have already been initiative taken in the Fort Collins community to make to move toward cleaner energy sources. For instance, Fort Collins proposed the Climate Action Plan, which is expected to reduce carbon emissions in a little under 15 years, with investor-owned utilities being required to have at least 30% of their electricity to be powered by renewable energy by 2020, reports Yee. The 10-point plan proposed by CSU is expected to be undertaken by students and faculty members to reduce carbon emissions, and after the EPA recently announced the repeal of the Clean Power Plan, this is beginning to look being looked upon as a great step in the right direction. Now I'm going to send it right over to Gabe for um, <coughs> some information on the opioid epidemic. Yes, and this is also going to be the subject of our roundtable discussion if you guys want to join us later. Heather O'Hare, Deputy Director of Larimer County Department of Human Resources, claims that there has been an increase of child welfare cases that involve some sort of opioid use. According to the Coloradoan, Larimer County's Department of Human Resources claimed that one in ten of accepted child welfare cases involve some sort of drug abuse, and other supervisors claim that as many as three in four cases in the department involve drug usage. 
Statewide, the Colorado Child Welfare System in 2016 accepted 36,318 cases, and out of those, 4,735 of them involved substance abuse that affected their ability to be caretakers of their children. Most notably in Fort Collins, parents Ashley McFall and Justin Busby were convicted of child abuse resulting in serious injury of their children after being found unresponsive by police in their home. The Coloradoan reports that both will serve upwards of five years in prison. An article published by Jason Pohl of the Coloradoan in July describes steps Fort Collins officers are taking to avoid opiate overdoses and how to respond to an individual showing symptoms of overdosing. According to Pohl, approximately 200 police officers in Fort Collins now carry a drug called Narcan, an overdose-reducing naloxone. Jason Pohl also states in a recent article titled A Hidden Horror, Heroin Deaths Rise in Colorado that the number of overdoses, the number of overdose-related deaths have quadrupled in the state between 1999 and 2016, which is pretty, that's a pretty astonishing number, yeah, quadrupled. That is that's crazy. absolutely terrifying. And like I mentioned earlier, this is going to be the subject of our roundtable discussion. If you guys want to call or text in at any time, you can call or text 970 970- Four nine one five two seven eight. Again, that number is nine seven zero four nine one KCSU. And I think we're going to jump right into national news now, and I will send it over to Julia. All right. Yep. Donald Trump and his team are engaging in a fourth round of talks this week concerning NAFTA, according to multiple sources. Vicki Needham of The Hill reports talk is growing that Trump is expected to pull the U.S. out of the agreement with Mexico and Canada altogether. The U.S. signed NAFTA with Canada and Mexico 23 years ago in 1994. Trump is famous for calling NAFTA, quote, the worst trade deal in the history of this country. Trump has also blamed NAFTA for causing the U.S. uh, to lose millions of manufacturing jobs. According to Miriam Valverde of PolitiFact, in September, the three countries had said uh, Canada and Mexico were making, quote, significant progress in negotiations. After the third round of negotiations in September, the three said in a trilateral statement, quote, in particular, meaningful advancements were made in the areas of telecommunications, competition policy, digital trade, good regulatory practices and customs and trade facilitation. Valverde also reports that during these three third round of talks, additional topics of negotiation negotiations included gender and indigenous people, as well as uh, energy trade. Needham of The Hill reports, despite the, uh, quote, talks being rocky, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Mexican President Enrique Pen- uh, Peña Nieto both, quote, shrugged off the pessimism this week and are, quote, uh, committed to completing a comprehensive update of the agreement with the United States. So hopefully they figure that one out. <coughs> yep. <laughs> that would be nice. <laughs> Anyway, I'm going to send it over to Gabe for some, it was for Tillerson. Rex Tillerson, yep. Yep. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson stated Sunday that the U.S. will try to stay in the Iranian nuclear deal just two days after President Donald Trump threatened to leave it. The statement came during an interview on Jake Tapper's State of the Union show on CNN. Tillerson asserted that the administration is no longer looking to back out of the Iranian nuclear deal, but rather to work with European allies whom also signed the treaty to revise the current agreement or create a new agreement with fewer flaws, reports Eli Watkins of CNN. According to Watkins, President Trump threatened to pull out of the deal on Friday after claiming the Iran had violated the current deal. Tillerson clarified that Iran had, quote, committed technical violations of the deal, but that the structures in the agreement allowed for time for correction. Iran has remedied the violations, which brings them back into technical compliance, Tillerson said. 
Tillerson also discussed how the president is looking to create a more comprehensive strategy and suspects that a new deal will likely have to be drafted. He cited the Obama administration for nurturing a flawed relationship with Iran's nuclear activity and said that, quote, the U.S. was focused on more issues than simply Iran's potential nuclear ambitions. U.S. Secretary to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, stated in an interview on NBC that the decision was directly related to North Korea. Haley said that the new strategy is an attempt to prevent the Middle East from falling into a similar circumstance as that of the Korean Peninsula. Lieutenant General H.R. McCaster, the administration's national security advisor, said in an interview on Fox News Sunday that the United States is holding up it, its end of the deal and that the administration will continue to try and rectify the fundamental flaws of the current deal. So that's a lot of uh, deals that they're trying to negotiate there. Yeah. <laughs> Seems like they're having some problems. He's wheeling and dealing over Wheeling here. and dealing. And over to JD for some global news. Yeah. A series of deadly bombings have occurred in Somalia's capital city of Mogadishu on Saturday and have injured more than 600 people, reports Eli Mexler of Time. The first of the bombings near Somalia's Ministry of Foreign Affairs building occurred in a crowded intersection, with the second bombing occurring only hours later in the Medina district. According to Mexler, the Associated Press reported that this is the deadliest bombing in Somalia's history, and the death toll is only expected to rise as excavations of the sites begins. The bombings are being credited to Al-Shabaab, an Islamist group that has been waging an insurgency war against the Somalian government since 2007 and pushes for a strict interpretation of Sharia law, reports Mexler. Al-Shabaab has vowed to increase their presence in Somalia in response to both the Somali president, Mohammed Abdullah Mohammed, and President Donald Trump, who vowed to increase anti-terror activities, reports Mexler. Thank you, JD. All right. Well, that's going to conclude local and national and global news. Um, we're going to be coming back with our roundtable discussion on the opioid epidemic. Um, so, yeah, if you want to just stay tuned. Also, if at any time during that roundtable you want to call or text in um, anything that you're thinking well, about that. The number is 970. The topic. <laughs> the topic. I was like, what is the word? Um, that number is 970-491-5278. You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review here on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. And welcome back to the Rocky Mountain Review. I am Julia Badalese, your co-host, in here with my co-host. I, Gabe uh, Peterson, hello, how's it going? <laughs> nice to see you. Do we're doing well today? I feel like <laughs> I feel like this show is just killing it. Yeah. Um, we're also joined uh, in studio with our national news correspondent JD Layton. Always here. Uh huh. And <laughs> likely story. I am always here. I would know. Uh, um, and of course, we have Haley Condelario from the Collegian uh, News Director over there. Oh, generally here. Generally here. <laughs> when I can be. <laughs> should that just be like after the title? You should be like how how much you're actually here yeah, in, in Rocky Mountain Student Media. Oh, I never leave. I sleep here. Just <laughs> <laughs> be funny though. I feel like afterward you just be like, hey, hey. By the way, so, forty hours here. Like like we've mentioned before earlier in the show, uh, this roundtable segment is going to be on the opioid crisis. Um, we read a story earlier that uh, to me had some pretty shocking numbers. Um, I'll just start it off with statewide, the Colorado Child Welfare System in 2016 accepted 36,000 cases and out of those over 4,500 involved substance abuse. And I think that it said 40% of them were opioid usage, um, which is prescription painkillers, heroin, um, lean, like we were talking about earlier, JD. Um, yeah. And some of those numbers are pretty shocking. 
Uh, more than 250 million prescriptions are written every year. That's enough for every single adult in the United States to have a just a bottle of pills. And there are 30,000 deaths a year nationwide due to opioids, which is pretty yeah, it's, it's outlandish numbers. Absolutely terrifying. <clears throat> like, and then you get things like fentanyl coming in which from would be the, China, which is like just mad dangerous. And it's 50 times stronger than heroin. Yeah, like Not that. to mention about two times <sighs> as cheap as other painkiller prescriptions. It, like the amount of fentanyl it takes to overdose is is such like a small amount in comparison to like heroin I, I saw a comparison where it's like it looks like a grain of sand in comparison to like uh, like several sugar cubes or hmm. like that's that's ridiculous yeah no it, it it really is and especially 50 times stronger than heroin how do you do that i have absolutely no idea how you do that jd um so Haley. yes how are you doing over there? You, good. Good. <laughs> good. So, uh, opioids. You got any facts for us over there? Uh, I don't. I don't know. I don't have any facts per se. Uh, I was actually just reading something about like how states that have like legalized marijuana have really like lower opioid deaths. Um, really. And so they think that it might be tied to the legalization of marijuana, just because um, medical marijuana will provide the same effects as like an opioid but i guess is less less harmful to like less people will yeah. overdose on marijuana i guess it's, i don't i don't really know the whole i don't i haven't looked into marijuana a whole lot i guess <laughs> <laughs> well especially with like the cbd and like how right. we had that pot talk the other day with um, talk. was his name josh I believe no so. I, I, okay. <laughs> anyways, wrong. that pot talk. Anyways, but <laughs> oh, we talked man. about CBD being non-psychoactive. Um, you don't necessarily need prescription painkillers. And I have here that the Purdue Pharmacy Company is like the main company who introduced OxyContin to the world. In 1996, OxyContin was introduced um, and they advertised it uh, extensively. They had stuffed animals with shirts or shirts on the stuffed animals saying OxyContin. They had hats prescribed for OxyContin. Um, they released a bunch of series about it, actually. Uh, they released a series in 1998 called I Got My Life Back, and it detailed seven people's stories on how amazing OxyContin was mm -hmm. um, back in the 90s. And they did a study, I believe it was the Milwaukee or Wisconsin Journal, and they tried to find those seven people, and two of those people had died from an overdose. Oh, my goodness. And one of the ladies um, featured said that she lost her house, she lost her car, she went bankrupt, she was so broke she couldn't afford health insurance. And because she couldn't afford health insurance, that's what saved her life, was because she got off of prescription painkillers because she couldn't get them. So, I mean, t just to think, because like early, in the early 19, 1990s, like it was, there was uh, this thing by doctors called opiophobia, where doctors were weary of prescribing opioids because they knew that they would become addicted. Mm -hmm. So we've gone from the past 20 years of people knowing that it was addictive and they didn't want to prescribe it to here's 250 million prescriptions per year when which I, is pretty shocking yeah i think the i think some of the like i think so, i think because i think the reason why it's still a problem is that um i was looking at like the huffington post and they were saying that um a lot of like the logic behind um like of like supply side taxes tactics is based on the like belief that opioid addiction is um more of like a problem of the morale of a human being um and like their willpower instead of um instead of like the actual problem being the opioids well mm -hmm. 
addiction has like two faces. There's the one where it's the chemical draws that that pull you in, and then there's also the reality of what you exist in. Like a lot of soldiers in Vietnam got addicted to, I want to say, twenty percent of soldiers in Vietnam got addicted to morphine, and there was a real concern when they came back that they, that we would have these essentially. Uh, like heroin junkies because morphine and heroin are, are, are very similar drugs. They're both uh, the same type of opiates, but a good I want to say 95% of them actually ended up coming back and Stopped using it completely there was and they just got back into life So having the correct social situations where you're not necessarily engaged in like war or you're isolated has a, has a big effect on addiction and and that's like one of the facets that sort of addressing recovery you need to deal with so you know, it's like with any addiction, whether it be cocaine or heroin or video games or pornography. It's like you, you, there are like cheese. Che- yeah, exactly. <laughs> cheese is actually as addictive as cocaine. There's a li- little fun fact right fun there. Fun fact. That you, was, you can't overdose sounds like some on fake cheese. News. I don't We're not think promoting fake news here. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you, you, uh, giving um, like a societal mechanism to sort of reincorporate people to building better bonds is uh, is a, like a better way of addressing uh, drug addiction. Kind of going off that, JD. I read a really interesting article by Sherlane McRae of NBC News. Um, she pretty much said that drug addiction is not uh, an addiction; it's a mental health problem. And mm-hmm. she says that the most powerful quote I got from it was, "We need to shift uh, from shame and punishment to healing and wellness in the country." So I think exactly. that because I think that you know when you say like, "Oh, I'm addicted to opioids," or "Oh, I'm a heroin addict," or anything like that, um, there is an automatic shame and there is an automatic you need to be punished for what you're doing. When when majority of these people who do overdose and who do do these drugs have no criminal record except for when they got on the drug. So obviously that's like a mental health state that they're in because they just need the drug. Like they can't afford it. So they're doing, you know, burglary, doing all these kind of stuff, breaking in homes. But if you, if you treated, if you treated them and got them off of those drugs, I think that you would not see them commit these crimes. And that's where I think the healing and wellness would come into a big effect for certain people who are addicted to these drugs. Right. Yeah. And this is not, this is not a saying that there is, it's only a social aspect. They're, they're clearly addicting. They like, there's chemical pulls that Mm -hmm. your brain just gets hooked on. Just just to to clarify, I was like, we're not, we're not, we're not like under, undercutting that. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, you want to say something? Uh, no, I'll let you go. <laughs> I just I want to go back to that uh, Purdue Pharma because I found a lot of kind of upsetting information about them. Yeah. 1999, they released a video and they had a doctor who was on their payroll and he came on and said it was called from one patient to another. And he claimed that less than 1% of patients became addicted. And that obviously is not true. And in 2007, the Pud- or Purdue, sorry, I <laughs> want to say pooter because my Fort Collins roots. But Purdue Pharma in 07 was sued, and they had to pay 635 million dollars in fines for lying, for lying and um, advertising misleading marketing. Pretty much, think about that. Over 630 million dollars because they said that this is not addictive, and they pushed it so hard. And I don't think that's enough. 630 million. I think that's like what they make annually. I think that they should lose a lot more money than that. Big Pharma scares me because they they can do that. They can lobby for these these things. Like this is uh, they've pushed for like opioids to sort of be the end all be all painkiller for things that might not necessarily require them, and they're sort of denying uh, like research into other other things like CBDs and things like mm-hmm. that. They're they're definitely lobbying against that. Like there's there's a lot of pushback that comes from them. That sort of dictates like our health when they only see profit margins, which is 
terrifying. And I'm, people bought into it. I mean, people in the 90s were buying Oxycontin, and right. Oxycontin sales for two years were higher than that of Viagra. And Viagra sells out the roof. So, th- I mean, that's a lot of people <laughs> taking Oxycontin. And just think of, like, Prozac and everything. People are on the Prozac train, and now people are wary of giving, like, antidepressants to people because it can alter your mood and it can do all this. So I think I think the thing is is doctors need to be very aware of who they're who they're treating and if somebody comes in with broken hand every two months because they're physically hurting themselves just to get these prescription pills you can't you can't just you can't prescribe that to them i mean if, if any of us were to walk into a doctor right now and said oh my ankle hurts i guarantee you 100 percent of the time you would get a medical marijuana card and that's like a different thing but i think that doctors are more um susceptible now to give prescriptions to people that don't necessarily need them hmm. yeah when when i recently injured myself and ended up in the er they were like we can give you something stronger and i was like no opioids are scary yeah no way <laughs> yeah. Like, no. yeah absolutely not well and i think the scariest part about all of this is that um i was reading on usa today that um tom marino he's the pennsylvania congressman um who was president trump's nominee for the drug czar he withdrew tuesday um less than two days after reports that legislation um marino backed restricted the enforcement of opioid laws then that's that's the thing right there because like i said opiophobia was a thing and doctors didn't want to prescribe it, but when there's legislation that says that, okay, you don't have to do background checks for people to prescribe them these drugs, because because before, if you prescribe somebody five times in a year, mm-hmm. they would automatically get declined. Now yeah. you can prescribe people as much as you want, and it's people like that who work for these big pharmaceutical companies who want to see this lobbied, because the only, only way pharmaceutical companies make money is if they sell drugs, right? So how do you sell drugs? You don't have any restrictions on how much you can get. And I think that's the problem that we're seeing now is that because it's so accessible and it's like candy now, it's 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 becoming a huge problem that we need to address, especially in places like West Virginia, New Hampshire, Kentucky and Ohio are the top four leading uh, states that have um, overdose related opioid deaths. And in those kind of places in like New Hampshire, I think that's the. That's where they're prescribing most of these pills. Do you have statistics on whether that's like uh, like illicit uh, opiates, like heroin, or if it's prescription? Oxycodone. Um, uh, I don't have it in front of me, but yeah, just just the prescription pills, just the painkillers. Okay. See, that's that's ridiculous, right there. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's not even people procuring them illegally. That's just people having access to to like way way too much of this. Way too much. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Haley? Uh, so. I have like a really, really personal connection with like the opioid crisis because my mom, when I was 16, actually overdosed on opioids and passed away. So this is like a really like it's always been something that's really interesting to me uh, just because like I have a really strong tie to it. Um, but I, I don't know. I just I always think it's so crazy. And I, I get really mad at like newscasters when they're like the opioid, like opioid epidemic is a real thing. Like, yeah, I live through it and I know that, you know, mm-hmm. um, but I just think it's, I just think it's so interesting how easily people can get it, just get opioids and, or like get like prescription medication. Because I remember going to like doctor's visits with my mom and she would be like, yeah, my back is really hurting and like, I'm on this medication and this medication, but nothing's happening. And I like, as her daughter, I was like, oh, I feel bad for my mom. But then at some point I grew up and I was like, I don't really know if she is in physical pain or if she's just like wanting to get like get this prescription medication. So I don't know. I see I see both sides of it where it's like there's like a 
kind of a dilemma within myself where I'm like, I don't know if someone needs it because they are actually in pain or if they're just, you know, it's that addiction thing and that mental illness thing where I just don't know if, you know, it makes her feel better or it made her feel better Mm -hmm. to go and get through life or what have you. So I see both sides of it. Um, Yeah. That was a sad story. And yeah, yeah it was shocking. I don't know. None, I of us, just, none of us knew that. So. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it something like one in three people know someone who's like been yeah. affected by yeah. opiates? Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. And so like that's that's way that's just ridiculous. That's like a, at, that's a high in, number. In 2017, we shouldn't be uh, like giving people access to such like a large quantity of something mm-hmm. that can be so detrimental to society. Yeah. I th- I think. Well, first of all, Haley, was your mom taking prescriptions your whole life, or is it something that was more recent as you got older? Or uh, that's a good question. I I want to say she was taking it probably since I was about ten or so. Maybe okay. like sometime in elementary school is when I think I really started to notice it. Because um, I think it is important that these drugs are are prescribed because some people genuinely need them. Right, like which I is, think is probably how it started. Is like yeah. she needed it. Because she had back surgery at some point, and exactly. then I think it just kind of escalated from there. Yeah, so we can't get... The the, pro, the solution is not getting rid of these drugs. Mm-hmm. It's maybe just making sure that these people really need it. Mm-hmm. Because right, fentanyl, yeah. for example, is only supposed to be prescribed to people who have cancer or cancer mm-hmm. patients who are going through uh, radiation, chemotherapy, all that kind of stuff. But when you see 26-year-old kids on the side of the street taking fentanyl overdosing... Um, that's when that's when you really have to take a look and just see how did these people get their hands on this drug, and that's where you, I don't know that's where you got to start the questioning, mm-hmm. for sure. Right. Yeah. And I mean, like, looking looking at the source either from doctors having them take more responsibility, um, whether it be like just definitely not prescribing as many or as frequently um, for pain, or maybe looking for different alternatives, or looking at big pharma as well. It's like maybe you shouldn't be pushing so hard to be selling yeah. poison and maybe poison is a bit of a, a, a bad term for it but still and the the cdc center for disease control in 2016 actually released guidelines for doctors and it said in like in like the biggest part of the report it urged doctors to not prescribe opioids and to try and find a different kind of treatment for them whether that be in here in colorado cbd medical marijuana all that kind of stuff um, there are there are solutions out there, but like I said, you can't you can't totally get rid of like oxycotton, for example. You know, right. people do have back surgeries. Like my father had a back surgery, and I know that he has pre- been prescribed that. Um, so you can't get you can't take these away, but you need to take away the ability to maybe abuse these because you watch all these documentaries and these people are committing self harm just so that they can get their hands on these drugs, and then that's when it becomes a problem. For sure, and I mean I mean I also think. A big issue is, um, like I said with uh, Tom Marino, that just having someone backing that and having like some sort of um, having like a way to like affect les- legislation. That's just it's too much power in the hands of someone who should Ph- not have that power. <laughs> Pharmaceutical companies spend more on elections than big oil and any of these things. So prescription or pharmaceutical companies give more money to as donors to, you know, people like Trump or people like Hillary Clinton who are running for president, governor, Senate, whatever. Um, they give the most money. And that's, that to me is something that we need to talk about and put that in the open because there's no way that these companies that are directly responsible for overdose deaths 
get away with that just by giving people money and creating legislation like Tom Marino, who two day, you know, he got, he withdrew because he knew he wasn't going to make it because people were going to see that, oh, you donated millions of dollars. Like you can't do that. Well, it's like he, he basically just like undermined the ability of law enforcement officials to stop suspicious shipments of opioids. Um, and then I think actually since then, um, the acting DEA administrator, Robert Patterson, um, also acknowledged that Tuesday on Tuesday that the Marina legislation uh, like did impact the agency's efforts to stop suspicious opioid shipments um, and also um, added added to um, to added that it made um, investigators work more challenging. Yeah. And that is interesting. Because the more levels you have to go through to stop something, the less you're going to want to commit to that. You're going to be like, oh, well, this is just too hard. Like, I can't, I can't, there's no proof that they're doing these shipments of drugs when they know that they are, but they have to go through so, so many legal loopholes and all that kind of stuff that they just kind of give up. So it did impact. And I, that's an interesting little article you got there. <laughs> <laughs> just a little article you got there. Um, anyway, I think that is going to wrap up our roundtable discussion for today. Uh, we'll be coming back in just a couple minutes with um, our music and sports segment. Um, so just stay tuned. This is the Rocky Mountain Review here on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. And welcome back to the Rocky Mountain Review. I am your co-host, Gabe Peterson. I am joined by, in studio with my other co-host, Julia Badalese. Hey. Uh, we have Abe Martin on for our music segment. Yes, indeed. What's good? What's good? And we also have Bjorn Larson here that he is going to do sports. Yeah, yeah how's it going? <laughs> it's going good. So why don't we just send it right over to you, Bjorn? Yeah, so I'll uh, start off our sports segment with a report on women's soccer. A complete 90-minute effort on each side of the pitch propelled the Colorado State women's soccer team to a 2-0 victory over the visiting Utah State Aggies on Sunday afternoon. CSU got goals from Hannah Gerdin and Carly Earhart. The, team, the Rams team advances to 4-7-5 on the season and plays its final road matches of the 2017 season next, next weekend against New Mexico and San Diego State. The number 21 Colorado State volleyball team swept Nevada for the seventh consecutive time this past Sunday afternoon. As the season draws on, the Rams' winning ways have continued as they have now pushed their record to 18-2, winning 18 of their last 19 matches overall. They remain perfect in the conference, with Boise State being their only game in which they were forced, to ma- forced into more than three sets. The Rams are back on the road this Thursday when they take on UNLV. The number 11th ranked Colorado State's men cross-country team plays 6 of 35 teams in a loaded field at the Nutty Comb Wisconsin Invitational on Friday afternoon. The men's team placed 6th in the team competition, while Gerald Mock was their best finisher, placing 16th. The CSU women's team placed 29th of 34 teams in its first ever invite to the meet. The Rams' top finisher for the second straight meet was senior McKenna Spiller, who placed 113th. Head coach Art Seemers was happy with the boys' performance as they beat all of the other Mountain West teams, which helps them get to their goal of winning the conference. Colorado State football came out under the lights and defeated Nevada 44-42 this past Saturday in front of a homecoming crowd of 36,765 people, the fourth largest home crowd in program history. The team took an early 14-0 lead, but Nevada battled back, creating a close game the whole way. Wide receiver Michael Gallup had a career day, catching 13 passes for 263 yards and three touchdowns, earning him the Mountain West Player of the Week award. Coach Mike Bobo had this to say about Gallup. Michael Gallup really had a good look in his eyes during warm-ups and wanted the ball all night. Every time we threw it to him, he came up with the play, end quote. The team is on the road this weekend, taking on New Mexico. 
Uh, that wraps up your sports update for the week. Wow, what a game by Michael Gallup. Yeah, what he's a the man. Beast. And I just want to thank you, Bjorn, for not mentioning uh, that 23-10 to 10 loss the Broncos suffered. That was yeah, great. Thank yeah, you. But you just not... mentioned it, so way to go. <laughs> way to go, I know. I just had to uh, voice my... Sadness. Disappointment. That was not a fun game to watch. <laughs> no, it was not. Uh, we're going to send it over to Abe Martin now for our music segment. Yes. Hello. How is everybody doing today? Great. <laughs> that is good. Gabe is the only person in the building. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Tough I, crowd. I giggled. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I have a slight announcement to make. What's up? I want to say that the 90s are officially back. Ooh. Oh, yeah? It's a okay. fact. Denim on denim is no longer frowned upon. It, oh, that I, is not I, true. No, that is true. Not I true. See, I see it daily. <laughs> There's so much denim on denim. I oh, hate it. Daily. I hate everything about really? it. Really? Everything about denim on denim. Well, let me continue my announcement. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're wearing denim. Yeah, you are. Not on denim, though. <laughs> if you tried it, if you tried it, it would look good. That sounds fake. I can guarantee that. But that's besides the point. <laughs> Windbreakers, overalls, and oversized sweaters adorn us on a daily basis, and the music, specifically R&B, is slow, smooth, and guaranteed to set the mood. Acts such as SZA, Kehlani, Smino, Georgia Smith, Goldlink, No Name, and Chance the Rapper, just to name a few, have channeled their 90s kid nostalgia into their music, drawing heavily ins- heavy inspiration from the likes of Erica Badu, Jodeci, Aaliyah, Boys to Men, Andre 3000, Kanye, and abundance of Generation X tastemakers. Long story short, 90s kids grew up, and they're making the music that they listen to. Among these acts is the... Maryland-raised and Los Angeles-based Brent Fiaz, who was best known as the frontman of the independent band Sonder, and for his contribution on the recently platinum turn track Crew by Goldlink. And if you haven't heard that song, I think you need to. I'm going to play a quick sip, snippet of that if you Go do for not it. mind. If I'm going to fade this out real quick. <laughs> I look like I'm the man I don't know if you can First hear me off, singing along that, there. That, that was such a great contribution great. to the song, game. I love that. Thanks. I was getting down. That was awesome. I really like that. Yeah, that is. I think ben. you should just make a, a remix of that. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, that was Brent Fiaz, excellent vocalist. And that song is just absolutely blown up mm-hmm. and gave Goldlink a lot of recognition. But if you go through YouTube comments, everybody's like, I'm here for Brent. I'm here for the chorus, <laughs> which is which is cool. Props to Brent. And he is also, or he's actually released an album uh, just four days ago, last Friday. And his solo debut is called Sonder's Son. As I said, it was debuted this past Friday. And it takes us on a journey through the grind of a man, young, broke, following his dream through the wins and losses of love. So here is a quick little rundown of the 42-minute LP. I chopped up a little bit of a review stay tuned <laughs> stay tuned <laughs> and here's the review so you didn't have to wait too long <laughs> so Saunders' son offers an eclectic mix of acoustic soul coupled with kenneth edmonds-esque melodies you know kenneth edmonds as babyface if you're not sure who he is mm-hmm. if you like r&b definitely check him out um the lyrics resonate with 20-somethings hopelessly searching for emotional and financial security i'm not sure who can't relate to that right now uh, i don't think anybody <laughs> and I'm just gonna give a quick uh, quick rundown on my top three tracks. 
Um, the first one being Gang Over Love. Second one is First World Problems. And the third one is Talk To You, all of which have kind of a Latin feel to it. You can kind of hear some rockas and some Spanish guitar. Some Despacito in the background. A little bit. A little <laughs> bit. It's, it's definitely smooth. And his vocals are, if if you heard that, it's definitely some some good stuff a nice little nice little soprano mm -hmm. so it is solid however what makes and breaks albums are their b-sides and unfortunately some of the in-between tracks on Sanderson are a bit lackluster as they make it feel a little bit longer than it has to be and four of the 12 tracks are interludes that don't necessarily give anything to the album mm -hmm. and whenever four i hear interludes yeah there's four and they're about a minute long each it's almost like you could have just made one four minute song. <laughs> yeah, I mean, really. <laughs> but it is what it is. He he had a creative direction for it, and it partially told the story. The first track is pretty much sounds like just ambient sounds of like dogs barking, and it's um, him about to go to a school day. But then we don't really get any of those elements throughout the rest of the album. Like hmm. we don't really. Um, the it, it opens up with track called Home. That's the that's the first interlude. It's just a minute long, and it's like his mom telling him to wake up and stuff. But hmm. we don't really get that character anymore. So what if he just falls really back asleep and he's dreaming? What if his album's his dream? You know, I might have to give it a couple more listens to do <laughs> that. Right. Then. I have given it three listens, so I feel as though that's enough to nope, not enough. review it. That's enough to review it. <laughs> It has to be timely. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Do you want me to review an album that I've been listening to for two years? Because I can definitely. Do that. Oh yeah, you can create a PowerPoint for you on you that. Did. I did. I, yeah, you're right. It, it had been ten plus years since I was listening to that album, but um, that's besides the point. So, as many artists often do, I feel as though Brent could have added one or two songs from his previous project, AM Paradox, to add another element to the album, specifically his tracks, "Lovely." And I want to say Paranoid was under the other track that was really solid on his previous AM Paradox. I feel like that would have given it less redundancy. There's a really fine line between consistency and redundancy with music. And unfortunately, Sanderson is kind of teetering on the, on the ladder there. So <laughs> that is my review. Overall, I don't give overall scores. <laughs> feel like feel like that doesn't exist. <laughs> overall, I don't give overall. So yeah, <laughs> it's a good album. I liked it. You might like it. Yeah. So if you're into R and B, if you're into it's a yes or no, of, he's giving it a yes. Yeah, exactly. If there you're you into if you're into some nostalgic vibes, I'd give it a listen. Awesome. Well, thank yeah, you, Abe. Absolutely. I like that. I like that. I like yeah. that little uh, segment you put in there, the thirty-second little chorus. Yeah, it was good. Yeah, it gives you, it's gives us you all, an idea. Got us all moving in here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you lastly, singing, especially. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> that was the biggest part. Gabe, um, beautiful vocals. And now, <laughs> and now, now over to Gabe, our designated meteorologist. <clears throat> yes, 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 yes. Um, if you like the weather today, uh, get used to it because the rest of the week is supposed to be exactly the same. Today was a high of 74. Uh, tomorrow, Wednesday is going to be 76. Thursday, 72, and Friday, 75. Uh, so it's just going to be pretty much the same day throughout the week. Um, Still sweater weather, as I have said before, because it's my favorite time of year. Um, but yeah, it's going to be a pretty nice week. And then Saturday, it's looking like it's going to be kind of cold, 50s, high 50s. So bundle I'll, up. I prefer the 60s, yeah. in my personal opinion. Yeah. Um, but 75 and sunny, you can't go wrong. Uh, Southern so, California. Well, no, I mean, I'm always down for like that. But yeah. also, it's getting to like October and like. You know, my birthday's rolling around and Halloween's rolling around and I'm just like, I feel like everything needs to be cold. 
Yeah, that's or true. not like cold. Not like any. It doesn't need to be snowing. I'm Colorado. Please don't make it snow. Oh, you it's gonna be cold. The chill. The, the, yeah. the chill fall. The, the chill fall. The, what Abe was saying with like the the oversized sweaters and stuff. Yes. 90s Yo, are coming back. I like I that. Can't, yeah. I Overalls. can't wait to wear my giant sweater. Oh, I'm coming in on and denim and denim on Thursday. Dude, my Canadian tuxedo yes. game is hard. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. It means jeans on jeans. Oh. Canadian tux? Yeah, look it up. It's a, it's a good look. Well, it is 5 o'clock. Uh, that's going to do it here for the Rocky Mountain Review. Uh, yeah, so thank you, Bjorn Larson, yeah. our yeah, no designated problem. sports reporter. Congratulations on your title. <laughs> um, uh, and Ave Martin for coming in for um, our production director and music person. Yeah, much love. Thanks <laughs> for having me. Yep. Um, and, of course, J.D. Layton, our national news correspondent. Um, thanks I, for... I, I live here. Oh, God. If you need a new catchphrase, J.D. Um <laughs> And my co-host Gabe Peterson. Yeah, it was uh, it was a good show. It started off with a great interview, uh, and I think that roundtable went really well. So yeah. good show overall. Uh, we will be back Success. on Thursday at 4 p.m. Uh, can't wait to uh, have you guys listen you to then. that show. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm Julia Battelise. This was the Rocky Mountain Review. Like Gabe said, you can catch us back here on Thursday from 4 to 5 p.m. Um, yeah, you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. Thank you for listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. Today you've heard about CSU's newest renewable energy plan. You heard our discussion regarding the rising opioid epidemic in Fort Collins, as well as a live interview with CSU sociology professor, Dr. Joshua Spica, regarding recent incidents here on campus. Thank you to Dr. Spica and Haley Condelario for stopping by the studio. Also, huge thanks to our reporters, Joe Green, J.D. Layton, Raven Color, and Bjorn Larson for contributing to the show. This podcast was produced by Julia Battelise, Joe Wood, and myself. You can find these podcasts and more on SoundCloud, iTunes, or KCSUFM.com.